0: Hello and welcome back to The Dreaded Question. I'm your host, Lily Torre, and this week I get to welcome the wonderful and amazing Emmett Grossland. Emmett and I met at the Jen Waldman studio, and I've always admired him as a true multi-hyphenate artist. He's incredibly talented in a wide variety of art forms, and to be honest, our conversation really sparked a lot of creative energy in me. I'd been feeling a bit down about theater in the past few weeks, but chatting with Emmett about collaboration, play, and being a jack-of-all-trades really got me feeling inspired and excited about being a creative person. I hope our conversation does the same for you. So let's find out what Emmett Grossland is up to. So, Emmett Grossland, what are you up to? Man, that is a dreaded question.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I am actually, you got caught me at a good time because I filmed yesterday. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. What did you Thank film? You. I have a very small part on NBC's New Amsterdam. Amazing. Yeah. I, it's my third season with them. I am nurse Edward Brunstetter. Oh, what a name. <laughs> Brunstetter. <laughs> I, I just like to Germanize it. <laughs> so I was filming yesterday, which is I feel incredibly fortunate to be doing that right now. Yeah. And the set is as safe as you could possibly make it. So if it's possible to be safe, it is. Yeah. I was going to say, is are there safety protocols and all of that? Like, how's that going? There, It's a lot of testing. So it's a PCR test, which is the like longer term, more accurate one and you have to get that. I think it's 48 hours. Like I had my PCR test on Tuesday, I believe, and then got the results Wednesday and the filmed Thursday. And then the day you're filming, when you walk in, they do a rapid test before you go to your dressing room. And you kind of sit in your dressing room and get the results while you're sitting in your dressing room to that one. So everybody is very tested.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, what a world! What a world we're in, and especially I'm sure for you, having been with the show for a few seasons now, you have the experience of what that exact same, you know, set group of people, all of that was like pre-COVID, and now during COVID.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, it, it was a big family affair for lunches. You know, was it was, a, it was a, mm-hmm. a catering would come in, and it was a big potluck feel. It was a buffet, and yeah. no longer, obviously, that is not happening anymore. Now it's you put your order in, and it's brought to your dressing room. Wow. Which is nice, but... Yeah, that community feel is kind of gone, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of downtime in filming anyway, where we're all sitting in our cast chairs and can chat and all that, but... The chairs are now six feet apart, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course. I would hope so. Plus, it's a medical show, so we're all wearing masks anyway the whole time. (laughs) That's true. I didn't even think about that. So it actually fits. I haven't taken my mask off yet during filming (laughs) this season, so... Wow, that's wild. I'm also slightly safer than if I was filming something else, some other subject matter. Yeah, that's funny. I've been thinking a lot about
0: what type of art, you know, TV shows, film, theater, whatever, that are going to come out of COVID and Mm -hmm. just sort of like both just logistically, but also our psychological response. But logistically now I'm like, I wonder if there'll be even more doctor shows because everybody can wear masks and it'll make sense.
1: <laughs> <laughs> true. That's true. Yeah. And it's not that and every it's not that everybody does the whole time, because obviously there's sure. times when we're not in a surgery room or whatever. But I right. my, my role, I tend to always be in some sort of dire traumatic situation. So of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, thanks for sharing that. That was really interesting
0: to hear about what the filming process has been like during COVID. And I know that on top of being a film and television actor, you also do theater. And on top of theater, you also do art, both as a fine artist and a graphic designer, which is incredible. I would love to hear more about how each of these avenues of your
1: career path started. It's funny because I, when I was thinking about talking to you, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have so many different like career paths I've gone down and like things <laughs> I've explored. And then I sort of realized not 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 really. I mean, it kind of all boils down to I'm an actor and an artist and art has taken many different forms for me over the over the years, partially because of interests and partially because of like just deciding where I could actually make a living and not. So I started out in high school, I was much more of a visual artist, and I danced and I sang and I did theater, local community theater for fun, but I was never the best one at those things, but I was often the best one at the visual art. So when I went to college, I actually made the decision to give up performing. I was not going to pursue that at all. I was pursuing visual art completely, and I was pretty sure I was going to be pursuing some sort of like graphic design design route, Um, mm-hmm. just because that seemed the most, like, from what the world was telling me, <laughs> that was the viable career path version yeah. of being an artist. And so I went to Washington University in St. Louis for graphic design. Within, oh I was probably within, like, two weeks of being there, I saw a notice for the musical auditions, and I was like, you know what? I'll just go. Yes! <laughs> and I got in, and I was one of the few freshmen in it, and I... Wow kind of didn't stop from there with going back into doing theater. What was the show? Oh, I was how to succeed in business without really trying. Oh yes. Not my favorite show. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. And so I actually ended up getting a dual major because it was at Washu, it's two separate schools. There's the art school and then there's the liberal arts college.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: my I crossed over. So I did my graphic design degree, but I also did a dance degree. And I did dance. I'm actually not 100% sure why I did dance instead of theater, (laughs) but I spent most of my time doing theater and I had a wonderful advisor who did some finagling and allowed a lot of my theater credits to count as art electives. So that sort of started me in this like figuring out how I could have this dual path happening. Yeah. And over the years, that's taken different forms. It's been graphic design. I do fine art. I sell paintings every once in a while, but don't focus on that as much as I'd like to. And now more recently in the last like three or four years, I've been doing uh, scenic art and properties design. Oh, wow. yeah,
0: That's amazing. I mean, even just the fact that you double majored in those things, I was actually thinking about this not too long ago that I think most universities are this way, but I really can only speak from my experience that specifically being a musical theater major, Mm -hmm. it was – essentially impossible to be a double major because the musical theater degree had the most credit requirements of any degree program in the university. Yeah, And I mean, some people could like sort of make a minor work, but usually it had to be something like a dance minor where you were kind of double dipping your credits. Yeah, yeah. But I, I feel like that in and of itself, while I understand it, especially for musical theater, because in some ways it's kind of like three degrees in one, (laughs) you're trying to like cram in. Yes. I feel like that is also contributing to this idea that like, if you're going to do this, if you're going to be a musical theater artist or a theater artist, this is all you're going to do. And that there's no space in your life for anything else. And when I think about that, I'm like, no wonder all of these amazing artists come out of these programs thinking that's all they're capable of and all they're allowed to do because, I mean, that's what they're literally conditioned to think in college is like there's no space for anything else. And so I love that you were able to find space and get that double major, fulfill, you know, the duality of your artistry. And, I mean, it seems to have worked out for you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because I I feel like particularly the art school – they definitely were of the mindset that, like, the art school would take up all of your time. There was no way you were going to do a double major. Like, the yeah. art school was kind of like what you're describing with musical theater, where it was so many credits and it was so much time. All the classes were very long classes, like mm-hmm. four-hour classes. So if I hadn't had that advisor, who was a former dancer, <laughs> uh-huh. I probably would have had a harder time. But she really believed in like the crossover of what I was doing and she believed in like that my you know dance history class was just as valid as my art history class and so she would count that as my art history so it was really like her advocating for it that really helped because I don't think I could have finished it in four years if I hadn't because I do think that that was the mindset there too that was Like you need to focus in on one thing. And I've been told that my whole life. Like, yeah, pick one and go with it. Jack of all trades, master of none. I've been told I'm jack of all trades so much. It's hard to not let that seep in. But I feel as if I really very recently, I'm still figuring it out, have realized that that's kind of bullshit and (laughs) that all of the the various paths I'm on, they all inform each other and they all make me better at the other things. Yes.
0: Uh, That's what I was just going to say is that you know, that expression, jack of all trades, master of none, sort of implies that the trades don't inform each other. Yeah. That if you're, you know, that you can be pretty good at a lot of things Mm -hmm. and that being pretty good at a lot of things doesn't culminate into anything, that that in and of itself doesn't create something that is masterful. And, you know, I would also say, obviously, that you and all of TDQ's guests and all of the artists I know are more than pretty good at a lot of things that are, are very good at a lot of things, but that it's, you don't have to just pick one thing and stick with it because everything that you do can inform everything that you do so that you can achieve the level of
1: mastery that you desire. Yeah, and I think I also like this, the idea of mastery or like being good at, and I, I think I'm starting to rethink this idea that I need to be like there's a sort of like a level that I need to reach or there's yeah. like a finish line or something as opposed to just following things that I'm interested in that excite me that I'm passionate about and devoting myself to the craft of those things without really feeling like there's some sort of benchmark goal in mind. Yeah. allows me to bring in other all these influences and really more worry about creating I don't know, a body of work that I'm proud mm. of or being the, the person I want to be even as opposed to being like, I don't know, that I need to master some specific avenue within what I do. I mean, it's all binary thinking, which I, as, a, as like a non-binary person, I think that that has also shifted my mindset quite a bit because yeah. I've had to tear down the constructs of that whole concept of like you're either this or you're that And I've just found such beauty in the concept of, like, I don't know, just getting rid of that notion and just being without worrying about, like, being the most masculine or the most feminine or the most whatever or the best singer or the hit with the highest note. And, like, releasing that, I I feel, has made me a better human and a better artist in all of my avenues. Yeah, I can imagine.
0: It's very freeing and... It's so funny you're bringing up so many things that have been on my mind recently, including this idea of sort of being the best or being really good at what you do. And I think it I think it involves what you're saying about binary thinking because when I think about that about like I got to be the best, I have to be at the top of my field or to be at the top of my game. I often think about who decided what was good? Like yeah. whose definition of the best of the most talented or whatever it is, are we trying to achieve and fulfill? Because, you know, it really should only be our own, but we have these outer expectations and these societal standards. I mean, even the example you used, who can sing the highest note, you know, for – a woman, it's like that's being the epitome of of feminine is this high floaty soprano voice. So having the highest voice is like this achievement as being so feminine. And it's like, well, why? Like, Who decided that that's what that means? That's so dumb. And so I think there's really something to be said about setting your own gauge, your own marker, your own measuring stick of what it means for you to be the best. And it sounds like for you personally It's about being inspired by the work that you're doing, being interested in the things that you're doing, and allowing the things that you do to bolster the other things that you do.
1: Yeah. It's super important to me that what I'm doing creates space and like a pathway for other trans artists and questions things for cis artists as well. Like, I think opening up the concept of gender is beneficial to everyone, not just trans or GNC people. So it's important to me that like in every aspect of what I do, I am allowing space for that to happen, for that change to happen. And I think that has become more important to me than like, yeah, like the highest note or the lowest note or whatever. I have an interesting story about that. So for a long time, I was taking doing voice lessons to try to lower my voice. And I have lowered it quite a bit. It was quite much much higher than this. And my singing voice, especially, I was a mezzo soprano. And working hard to like be able to sing typically male musical theater repertoire, I was having to stretch my voice lower and lower. But the other thing I discovered was that if I'm singing a high tenor song, I can hit all the high notes. They're super easy for me. They're in the middle of my range as opposed to being the top of my range as they right. would be for most. As male tenors, and so this weird thing happens where because they're easy for me, because they're in the middle of my voice, they don't sound as exciting or difficult. Yeah, that's true. And so I was actually training myself to manufacture my high tenor notes—that was in quotes—sounding <laughs> difficult. Yeah, and putting a li- like adding strain to those mm-hmm. notes so that they sounded exciting and hard,
0: <laughs> which is wow. such a
1: weird concept. <laughs> That is so So strange because usually it's like you're trying to attain this ease on those notes, but I was finding because they were so comfortable, that excitement was gone. Anyway, I think that I just I think about that sometimes and I I still work on that because it is useful for certain roles, but it's also like it just turned on its head this whole notion of like the goal is to sing the highest note because I can Mm -hmm. already sing higher than just about any cis male, but it actually doesn't benefit me. (laughs) Yeah. That's so funny. That's like the
0: reverse of what I was saying before. Yeah. Yeah. It is truly wild. And it's another great reminder about, again, what we're saying of like using your own measuring stick of what it means to be good at your art and Mm -hmm. good at what you do and even like how you tell a story. So it's like for you, you know, you were adding in some, that more effortful sound to achieve that kind of, you know, those stakes in the moment. Yeah. But there's also ways that you can tweak the the physicality of how you're telling the story exactly. and the acting of it. And like that makes that performance so uniquely Emmett and not
1: just another rendition of
0: On the Street Where You Live.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it also speaks so much to like what you were saying with who decides and not to get too political here, but it all comes down to capitalism really. It's what's yeah. sellable in the current market. And so I think a lot of times who decides is the white cis male hat culture. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I have found very recently, especially that I don't fit. There's nothing I can do to fit into a lot of that. So it kind of forced me. It just allowed me to say, you know, fuck you about like a lot of those rules because I can't possibly ever really fit into those expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's freeing in a way that I can't because it it forced me, who is someone who normally would want to like do everything I can to fit, it forced me to have to just say, you know what, fuck it. Yeah. I have to invent my own thing here. Yeah. And I mean, it kind of seems like that's
0: been a theme for you for a while. Like you created your own sort of mishmash degree in college and even the way that you you know, finagled the credits to apply so that you could make that work. Like you really kind of have gone about a lot of things in your own way. And I'm curious, when you left college and you went out into the real world, as they say, (laughs) yes, how did you approach your career? Were you like, okay, I'm going to start with this one thing and focus on that? Or were you kind of trying to pursue all the things simultaneously?
1: Like how did that work for you? I was lucky enough to, I overlapped my professional career with college because I worked at Stages St. Louis while I was still in college, and I would worked there a couple summers, and so that kind of got me started immediately and put my mindset immediately into doing theater and professional theater straight out of school. So I... Went straight into that. I also, though, was already designing things for, like, the performing arts department at my university, graphic design-wise. And so that also put me into doing graphic design straight out of school as well, mostly for theater companies and other performing arts organizations. So I went straight from... I did summer stock, and then I went to... Uh, I did Children's Theater in California for a few years. And while I was doing those... Theater gigs, and those were all non-union theater gigs, I was also doing freelance graphic design. And then because it was summer stock and because it was children's theater, it was the kind of setup where it was a company of actors who also did, you know, the scenic painting and the choreography. And yeah, so that also helped too because that got me, I did for three years, I did scenic art for the children's theater I was also acting for under like, you know, someone who was a professional scenic artist. So I gained those skills doing that, and I had designed a couple sets in college as well. So I just kind of always—I don't know if I tried to put myself or it just happened—but I was ended up in situations where I was able to pursue both, and whenever those opportunities came up, I took them. So then I did—I did children's theater. Then I did worked for the LA Opera for mm. three years as a dancer for them. Wow! And while I was doing that, I was still doing graphic design as my like. Back then I thought of it as a side gig and I eventually did, on my way to New York, I booked the national tour of Grinch. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was driving to New York with no job prospects at all and (laughs) I got the call about halfway across the country and I had auditioned in L.A. because they were going to be rehearsing in L.A. originally Mm -hmm. and they were like, but there's one problem, we're actually going to rehearse in New York and I was like, that's (laughs) really convenient because I'm driving to New York right now. So I did that. It was a non-union tour of that. And then immediately after that was closed, I joined the union and did the regional theater route and still did graphic design during all of that. And then like a few years ago, I had done a couple off-Broadway things and some small TV things. And I sort of decided I wanted to stick around New York a little bit more Mm -hmm. and not do as much regional unless it was like something, you know. You know how it is. Sure. <laughs> of course. But so about 3 years ago I started doing scenic art more and that sort of branched into doing props just because that just seems to happen. So I was staying in New York at this point trying to stick around and so when you do scenic art it's harder to leave because it's more it's more of a like graphic design I can do from anywhere it's all remote. Right. Obviously scenic art I have to physically be there. So it was easier to do now that I was sticking around. So now I do I'm the scenic charge at New School. And a scenic charge and properties master. I have some other title there, too. Like, I think I'm the <laughs> artistic design associate, something like that, at Miles Square Theater <laughs> out in Jersey. And I do props and some production management at Columbia University. And those are a little bit more of, like, a s- stable. They're still contract yeah. positions, but it's a stable, more of a stable staying in New York type thing. And I still do graphic yeah. design, but I've really narrowed that down to the things that I enjoy doing. So now I mostly do logos and like illustration type stuff, logos and branding and illustration. That's amazing.
0: There's so much I love about what you just said, so I'm just going to try to take it one at a time. I mean, going back to when you were talking about summer stock, there's this sort of like perception of that type of summer stock that it's like a rite of passage. (laughs) It's like this – This thing that you have to do when you're non-union and you have to do this like grueling experience where you're also working in the costume shop or building sets or whatever. And I love that for you, that wasn't the experience because it is something that you actively enjoy doing. Yeah. And not just enjoy, it's part of your craft as well.
1: Yes. Oh, 100%.
0: Yeah, so this thing that has this like reputation of being this like grueling, horrible thing could actually be joyful and fulfilling to you because you had developed those parts of yourself and your artistry and your craft, and I think that that's just—it's just such a cool thing to hear. It's one of the like few times I've ever heard someone speak about summer stock in that way, and I think that that's. I I think back to like in college when we had to do practicum and help in, in some other form of theater design. And, you know, actors would complain about it all the time. It was like their least favorite part of the program. And the thing is like there was so much value there and there was so much that we were getting out of it that if you could just, like you said, like find the things that interest you and that you enjoy, like for me, it was actually props as well. I did Props for three of my six semesters because I enjoyed doing it so much. And I really liked our props mistress. But because of that, like I didn't have that same hatred for it that everyone else had. And one semester, you know, for a show, they needed some costumes that were knitted. And I love to knit. So I was like, hey, what if I do costume shop, but I only knit those costumes? And they were like, perfect, sounds good. Like that'll count. And so you know, like you said, kind of tailor making your experiences to what you're good at and what you like and what you want to improve in. I think that's so cool.
1: Yeah, and I, I, it's interesting props I think props is the one that I I didn't seek out props. That one just sort of happened to me, but it is the one that I feel has the most crossover to being an actor mm. because you really have to think like the character. Yeah. Like, what pen would this character have? Like, you know, you have to. And like, you have to have other knowledge that the actor may not need to have, like what kind of pen in that era or whatever. Sure. But the idea that like, oh, my gosh, this character would never have a pink sparkly pen or like the pink sparkly pen with the feather fluff on top is exactly the pen that this character would have. And so there's a lot of crossover and things like that for me as an actor and as a prop designer where I really can think about like who this person is because I can put myself in the place of like if I was playing this character how would I develop them as a human and then what objects speak about that yes so it's that's a natural extension and it's similar I mean like as a scenic artist a lot of times I'm being told what to paint what color to paint things yeah. or what to do with things but there's also something I don't know there's something magical about being in a theater in any capacity I do feel like there's something about being an actor for me that I've always connected to the physical world of the set and found that really informing of my character. Like, I'm always that actor that, like, if there's something I can climb on, I'm going to climb on it. (laughs) And I think being doing scenic art for me has been a natural crossover because of that, because I it has made me as an actor even more see like see the little decisions that went into what wallpaper's on this wall or what kind of end table is in this room and really realizing that those things were thought out and like if I'm the character who designed this room if it's my home why did I pick that wallpaper yeah so there's actually a lot of crossover between acting and scenic art for me as well as the props I love that because
0: it's such a good reminder like this seems like such a basic thing but we think of theater as being so collaborative mm-hmm. but- I do feel like oftentimes we miss opportunities for collaboration or we we don't recognize that someone else is trying to play with us, if yeah. that makes sense. Yes. So like someone choosing this wallpaper, like you said, mm-hmm. you know, that they were so intentional about that choice for you, the character, for this story that you're telling. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that person is saying like, here's what I think, like play with me, play with it, like mm-hmm. use it, like enjoy it rather than just being like, uh, whatever, like there's wallpaper on the wall. Like, I, I don't know, but, and completely ignoring it and being like, so in your head about, I have to create this character. What are my lines? What am I doing? Where's my blocking? Rather than just looking around and seeing all of the collaboration around you. I love that.
1: Yeah, like even even something is that is normally I think sort of invisible like painting a wood floor, like painting a faux wood <laughs> floor, for instance, there's there's a reason why it's as damaged as it is or as new and shiny as it is. There's right. a and like I'll even, I'll do things like put scratch marks where a chair is that I think that somebody might have moved a million times. Yes, oh that's so cool. And those little things are things that previous to really doing scenic painting, I don't know that I would have thought about as an actor. But, like, now what if I see somebody has done something like that, I'll move that chair. <laughs> like, right. you know? right. like, yeah, I just think there's a whole story being told by lots of people. And, like, for me, it's sort of become that I want to tell stories. And I what form that takes is lesser than telling the story in general and what stories I'm telling. Yes. Well, speaking of, you know, telling stories
0: and what form that takes, how did you start working in film and television?
1: So I, my agents, when I got them, I was doing a play off Broadway, and I had only really done theater previous to working with them. Mm-hmm. It's Bowles, Winnette, and Associates, and they're wonderful. And I remember maybe my first meeting, or it was when I was signing my contract with them, Judy Bowles, she I, she said something like, we'll work on getting you your that feature film or something. And I <laughs> laughed. And she's like, she looked me straight in the eyes, and she was like, don't laugh. <gasps> going to (laughs) and i was like okay and because it was something that i like many people i erroneously thought of it as unattainable and as like i don't know like something some something other people got yes and my agents really did a good job shifting that for me and so i really now i mean i still love theater and still pursue it but i love doing tv like i did not think i would like that world or the like the nonlinear aspect of it. I love it. I think it's, I love this, the feeling that it's like kind of feels nine to five. It's not, but it kind right. of like, you know, you go in in the morning, you work all day with the same people, and you go home. It's, it's also so much, just in a financial way, it's so much more valued. Yes. Which is completely unfortunate and awful. But it's yeah. also, it's made me really, for lack of a better word, angry about how undervalued acting in theater is. Right. Yeah. And so for me, it's that's a big part of it is focusing on it because I feel so much more valued and I, I I love doing new work in theater. And so like sometimes the value comes out of that, of course. Right. But there's also this feeling of being taken advantage of in a lot of situations in theater. And I'm not sure how we shift that, but it needs to get shifted. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it is funny. I feel like when
0: friends who are theater artists have started doing film and television, that tends to become, you know, much more of the focus because, you know, it's like, why am I fighting so hard to work somewhere where I don't feel valued simply just on a level of like, you don't pay me what I need to survive. And so yeah I just don't feel valued. And whereas in film and television, you know, one line – will pay you more than an entire theater contract. And it's kind of a cliche to be like, well, I'm not in it for the money, but like, okay, but you need to survive. And you're allowed to want to have money and be stable and be okay and not scrape for every penny.
1: Yeah, it's it's not even a question of like making like gobs and gobs of money. It's a question of like, there are theater contracts I've worked on that if you break it down, you're making like $7 an hour, sometimes even less, or you're making zero, <laughs> depending on what you're working on. And it's just not livable. It's not, especially in New York.
0: Exactly. That's kind of the the cherry on top for me is that theater artists get paid so little and then are also expected to live in one of the most expensive cities in the world on top of it. It's just like an irony I can never get over. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I'm so glad that you started doing film and television and that it has been fulfilling in many ways and joyful for you and that it's been going so well. That's incredible to hear. And I'm also curious about, you know, you were talking about some of the positions that you hold at a variety of universities and, you know, jobs that you hold with scenic design and props Mm -hmm. design. And I'm curious how you balance that with film and television, because like you said, it can be pretty long
1: hours Yeah, I mean, currently, I have a very, very small role. So I currently work one to two days a month on New Amsterdam. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And when I work those days, it's all day. And I've made sure that my jobs are aware of the fact that, and I tell them flat out that, like, my priority is going to be filming if I have a filming day. And so they all are okay with that and know that. And my positions with all of them are, they're all contract by contract. I'm not like full-time salaried position with any of them purposefully. I'm hourly right. because that way I can control it a little bit more. The other thing that's great about scenic art specifically and props really is a lot of it is on my own time. So like it's different. The universities are different. Like I'm a little more tied to hours for scenic art, especially at like new school. But my props and scenic art position at Miles Square Theater, for instance, which is a regional equity house I have keys to the building, so I can go paint in the middle of the night if I want. And so a lot of it's on my own schedule, which really, really helps. And of course, graphic design is very much my own schedule because I do it all from home. Right, which
0: is so great. I mean, have you found during COVID
1: that graphic design has been the thing that's helped keep you afloat? It's interesting because I... I had been distancing myself from doing graphic design, partly because it's very isolating, ironically, and I tend to be a hermit. So I got back into doing scenic art partially because I was finding that that hermit thing wasn't working for me mentally, for my mental health. And so I started doing scenic art as a way of just being in the presence of a theater more. and other humans and other artists and that really was working for me and i was enjoying it a lot but now that i've been i've been very seriously quarantining and i'm also kind of a like i'm an introvert so i enjoy a lot of the isolation of this sure so yeah i've been doing a little bit more but the other thing i did was i set up a recording booth in a closet in my apartment which is what i'm in right now and so i've been doing some book narration oh nice yeah so i've been i've been narrating for simon and schuster a few different i've done a few projects for them so far and then i recorded for a little commercial thing that shall not be named (laughs) so i've been just doing more voiceover stuff which is really interesting and fun yeah
0: i'm actually really glad that you're doing that because i was sitting here thinking about how nice your voice is to listen to so i feel like you'd be
1: great at that that's awesome. You should go over to actually the one that the, one of the really cool projects that I'm going to plug right now. Yes, plug it. It's called The World to Come. And it is a musical podcast. And it, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like post-apocalyptic <laughs> sci-fi, maybe. I, I don't know what it is, but it's very good. It's very funny. It's by Eric Ransom. And it's very good. It's very funny. But anyway, so head over to wherever you get your podcasts. I think you can find yes. it.
0: Yes, I'll link it in the show notes for sure.
1: That sounds yeah. awesome. I love that
0: that you have taken on yet another <laughs> form of storytelling and artistry in this time through voiceover and book narration. I think that's really great, you know, as well as doing your graphic design work of course. And yeah. I I think that's so smart and self-aware that you know that your tendency is to be more introverted and to sort of become a hermit. And so I mean that is one of the things about being a freelance artist is it can be very solitary, not to say yes. lonely, because you know, even like what you were saying with the work that you're doing at the various theaters and universities, it's all contract work. And so while I'm sure you're working with a lot of the same people over and over, you're the only one on your exact journey. You're the only one who works at that exact collection of places and yeah. is on New Amsterdam and is a graphic designer and does fine art and is a voiceover artist. Like <laughs> you're the only person with that exact path. Yeah. And it can feel kind of lonely, even when you're around a lot of other people. And so I would love to know I mean, I know that you said you're naturally an introvert, so maybe that doesn't bother you as much, but. If there are times where it feels a little solitary, what is it that keeps you going down that
1: path? First off, I enjoy the solitary aspect of it. Yeah. In a lot of ways. I think for me, I always have this feeling that at my back are young trans artists mm. and ahead of me are older trans artists. And so I, I feel like that lineage keeps me going in a lot of ways because I feel in the best way possible an obligation to both the people who have opened doors in front of me as well as the people behind me who need doors more doors opened for them and so I think that for me as much as I feel isolated there is a sense of community within the trans community and specifically within the trans artist community and even more specifically within the trans New York artist community That, like, even though I may not be hanging out with that group of people on a daily basis, I do consider a lot of them to be my friends. And even the people I don't really know, there is a sense that we are together in this. And so that makes me feel much less isolated. Yes. I love that. That's
0: beautiful. I mean, it's true. Like, again, while no one has had... Your literal exact path. It's important to look around and see who else is on similar paths or is ahead of you foraging the path. You know, sometimes I talk about like having a parallel career path and doing that type of work can kind of feel like you're taking a machete through a forest and just (laughs) kind of hacking and slashing and trying to find a way through. And Sometimes it's fun and sometimes the work feels satisfying because you're you're hacking a lot down and sometimes you're like oh my god I just want to put this down and catch my breath and so I think it's important to you know maybe those moments of catching your breath are really so that you can see yes I'm still having a hack and slash a lot of things but I can see the stumps of where someone else has already cut some things down for me and those are things I don't have to cut down for myself. And I think that that is a great reminder that you're not alone on this journey.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and then the idea that like it's worth the effort of forging a path just because I know from doing outreach with trans youth that like it's worth it because I know that like A lot of the bullshit that I've had to deal with, both as a non-binary person and also as like non-binary worker, or if you want, if you want it that, (laughs) it's going to make those things not even... Some of the stuff I've dealt with isn't even going to be thought of by people behind me. Like they're not even going to have to think about it. It's not even going to be on their radar. And that idea that like the brain space that is taken up by some things that are not fun won't be taken up hopefully because of something I was able to struggle through and hopefully like change in a, you know, at a specific theater or on a specific set. That's
0: amazing. That's such a great answer. And it's such a great reminder. I think for all of us, whatever, whatever journey we're on, whoever came ahead of us, whoever we're foraging a path for behind us, that checking in with those things is really what's going to keep you going. And You know, I think that you just have such an incredible and unique mindset about your work and what it means to be good at something, what it means to be fulfilled by your work that really embodies so much of what I'm trying to communicate on this podcast. That, again, kind of, I really loved what we talked about with the idea of jack of all trades, master of none, that like being a jack of all trades makes you your own unique master. And I think that that is just really powerful.
1: Yeah. And it can be overwhelming. I, I I do get overwhelmed because I do have, as when you list everything I do, like I do get overwhelmed right. about, you know, it's my, my day isn't clear. Like my day mm-hmm. isn't like at nine o'clock, I go to do this thing. I do that all day and then I go home. And so there is this side effect of doing every, what I do that it is I'm sometimes always on the clock or it feels like that and I am just now really honing in on what it means to really choose which paths I'm following and part of that is privilege part of that is that I am getting to a place where I can choose I think a lot of me doing a million different things originally was spurred both by interest but also by necessity of like I needed to piece together enough income to live in new york and i am now some of those things are blossoming more than others and i am able now a little bit to hone in on like with graphic design i don't take on projects anymore of like can you lay out this you know flyer (laughs) because i don't enjoy that some people do i don't and so i have i am in a place luckily i mean covid has thrown a lot of this for the loop but Sure. Where I can say I love doing logos, I love doing branding, I love doing illustration. So for now, that's all I'm going to do in the graphic design world. Yeah, setting those boundaries is yeah. so freeing. Yeah, and being able to to you know narrow and narrow and narrow until it is more clear. I'll never be on one single path. That's never going to happen. Um, <laughs> but like I could I could have a series regular on a network show and be making more than enough money, and I would still be doing art. Like I know that. Yeah, it's not that's not a question. So I, when I realized that was when I stopped calling it like a side gig or a backup or something, because I realized it wasn't because it's something I will always do in some form. So I now call it my parallel careers. Um, Yay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And yeah,
0: that's exactly like when, when I'm speaking with people and defining what a parallel career is exactly, that's part of it. Part of that definition is that you wouldn't quit it even when the dream job came along. And yeah. that very much sounds like that's what graphic design is for you. But it also doesn't mean that you have to do every element of it. Like you were saying, like yeah. putting up those boundaries is what
1: keeps it enjoyable and special and art for you. Yeah. And I think I think realizing that the graphic design the scenic art is all actually one thing. It's all art to me. Right. Was helpful too because like just chunking it down into one vein just mentally <laughs> mm-hmm. has helped a lot and like the voiceover feels like that's acting so I right. it's really just the two and they just take different forms
0: well I mean, thank you so much for yeah. for chatting with me today and sharing your story I think you have such a amazing perspective and I, I just loved so much of what we talked about today, and I'm really, really glad that
1: we got to sit down and have this chat. Me too. It was fun. I'll still dread the question, Nari. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awful. I get it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Talk about being an intentional, purpose-driven artist. Emmett brought up a lot of things that come with being a multi-hyphenate artist and or having a parallel career. That jack-of-all-trades feeling or fear that comes up is very real. And one of my big hopes for our generation is that we can dismantle that myth and drive home the fact that being good at many things makes you better at each of those things. I'm linking Emmett's website in the show notes, as well as a link to the World to Come musical podcast, so we can all go enjoy it. And if you're a new Amsterdam fan, make sure to keep an eye out for Emmett. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and as always, I'm so grateful to you for listening. I'm Lily Torre, and this has been The Dreaded Question.